Good morning, CBC. It's lovely to be with you. And the reading is from Romans chapter 3, from verse 21 to Romans 4, verse 7. Uh, let's begin at verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No. Because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold it. What then should we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. May Lord bless the reading of his word to us today. So we are continue our series right now all about the views of the cross, the way we look at the cross. And as we come up to Easter, we're trying to take various views of, of the way we look at the cross. And a few weeks ago, we looked at the whole issue of the sacrificial system. What did that mean? What does that mean about Jesus being sacrificed on the cross? And today we're coming to look at a legal expression. And that legal expression is one that may not, many people may not be too familiar with, but it's the term justification. We're familiar with the idea of justify because if you ever had an argument with someone and you're trying to explain or to excuse your behaviour, you will be trying to justify what you've just done. And this is a legal term. And this gives us a bit of a problem in the 21st century because we come at this word with 21st century eyes. And part of our energy today, part of the thing we've got to do is to try and get back into the eyes of Paul and in fact into the eyes of the Hebrew culture because the Hebrews had a very different view of law than we have a view of law. I heard the story about a 
a minister who lived in a big inner city church and he arrived late for a service and he circled the area loads of time trying to find an available car parking space couldn't find one so eventually he parked illegally on two doubled yellow lines and he left a little note on the on the under the window screen wiper for the traffic warden and the note said this it says i've circled this block for 20 minutes and i'm late for church and if i don't park here i will lose my job i'm the minister the good book says, forgive us our trespasses. And when he came out for the service later on, he found that right in the centre of his windscreen was a huge yellow sticker saying that he'd been actually fined um, for the offence of parking on WL lines. And next to it was another little note. And the note said this, I've circled this block for 20 years. And if I don't give you this fine, then I will lose my job. I am the traffic warden. The good book says, lead us not into temptation. You know, we like the law as long as it seems to be on our side. As soon as we go over the law and break the law, then we so often, so easily begin to regard the law as our enemy. A woman was once uh, stopped for speeding in London and she was doing 60 miles an hour in a 30 and she was caught by, um, by an unmarked police car. And as the policeman was writing out her ticket, she looked at him and snarled sarcastically and says, and just what do you do when you catch a real criminal? And the police officer carried on writing out her ticket and looked at her compassionately and smiled and says, I wouldn't know, madam. All I ever seem to do is, crack, is catch innocent criminals. In today's society, we have a fairly negative view of the law. And more than that, we have certainly a negative view of the legalist. And the legalist is someone we tend to despise and reject. But this isn't the view of the ancient Jewish people. It isn't the, the Hebrew view of the law, or in fact many ancient peoples. Because they lived in a very different time to our time now. You see, we live in a, in a society where we have a police force, we have law and order, we have government, we have control. But police forces are a fairly new innovation. In fact, Sir John Peel, who, who, who um, formed the police service in this country, didn't happen for many, many centuries. For many years, um, our, our, our outside of towns and outside of villages, there was chaos. There was people we called outlaws because they lived outside the law. And there's very little control. We, we sometimes celebrate them wrongly in one sense. You know, people like Dick Turpin, you know, these outlaws that would actually take people's lives, just brutally gun them down and take their, their possessions. And this was true throughout the world. And even when you had government and control, very often it wasn't fair government and control. So you can pop down to the British Museum and you could ask to see the law codes of Hammurabi. And the law codes of Hammurabi, Hammurabi was an was a emperor, a Babylonian emperor or a king, if you like, who wrote a series of law codes. And we've got these in the British Museum. In fact, we've got the law codes of Ur-Namu and a few other ancient law codes that give us an example of the laws of the time. Let me read from some of the law code of Hammurabi. It says, for example, a citizen, um, if a citizen has struck the cheek of his superior, he shall receive in the council 60 strokes with a throng, in other words, a whip. If a citizen struck the cheek of his equal, he shall pay one minna of silver. If a vassal has struck the cheek of a fellow vassal, 
he shall play ten shekels of silver. And it goes on. But it's very clear within this law that if you were someone who was noble born, and if you were someone who had money, you could buy your way out of trouble. So, for example, under these laws, you know, if you murder someone, you could pay a fine, but only a rich man could afford to pay that fine. And if you couldn't pay that fine, your life was forfeit. So the poor man who committed murder, he was dead. He would be executed. But the rich man could buy off the, the penalty of the law by, by using his money and his wealth, or even by using his status. And for this reason, when the biblical law, the Jewish law, came in, it was widely celebrated because it was a law that applied to all, no matter how rich or poor you were, you, you were no matter how, um, uh, how noble you were, what your status was, it applied to all. And, and part of this actually, um, is actually mentioned in the, in the law of, of Hammurabi, um, is this law, which occurs later on. And later on, it talks about what was called lex talionis. Lex Talionis is the law of a tooth. And a lot of liberal scholars nowadays do not understand this. And they very foolishly and weakly criticise this and don't understand the principle of Lex Talionis. Lex Talionis can be found, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 19. And it says this, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And this wasn't meant to be taken literally in the sense that literally if you knocked out a tube, you had a tube, yourself and that was knocked out. It basically was the punishment must fit the crime. It was saying basically no matter who you are, whatever your rank or status is, that the, the punishment must be just. And this was liberating in the, in the social law of the Hebrew people because it protected everyone and not just the rich and the privileged. In other words, you see in the, New in the Old Testament, there was a celebration of the law that existed. It was something that was good. It was something that was seen to protect people. When Fiona and I lived out in Germany, um, in fact, we lived out there quite a few times, um, one of our favourite places was Munster. And we used to go down to Munster, this famous um, city, one part of the Hanseatic League, very famous city, um, also famous for its role in the peace declarations in the, the Thirty Years' War in, in Europe. A wonderful old city with wonderful old buildings. And um, we, we, we used to like pop into the rat house. And in the rat house, over the market where the market was held, there was this huge, huge sword. Double-handed sword. And that sword was the sign of peace in that town. And every town in Germany that had a, a market that, that was looked after by law had these similar swords. And they symbolised the fact that criminals would be punished if they tried to steal and to rob the markets of that town. In other words, that double-handed sword was in the rat house, the, 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 um, the, the town hall, to demonstrate it was a town of law and order. It was a town that you could be safe to live in. It was a town which, which you could relax in because you had the protection of the law in that town. And so when the Burgermeister, the equivalent of our mayor, would march on official duties, the sword would be carried behind him by the, uh, by the executioner. And it symbolised that that was a, a town under law and order. The criminals would not be able to work in that town and take life and kill people with impunity. The townspeople were protected. This was true of the Hebrew people. The idea of law brought protection to them. It protected the poor and the vulnerable, as well as the rich and the privileged. It was something that was very positive. And as a consequence, the view of law and order was seen as something very good. And as a consequence, even in the very first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 18, God is looked upon 
as being a judge. Genesis 18 verse 25, will not the judge of all the earth do good, says Moses? Will not the judge of all the earth do good? Law was seen as something that was positive. It was there to protect the people. It was there to give order. And without that order, there would be chaos. You know, we agree to this in games because what game do, do you ever play without rules, without laws? We need the rules. We need the laws. Otherwise, the game will soon descend into chaos. We see this in football. Even the offside rule has a reason. Laws are there to protect and to give fun and to give meaning and to give definition into what you can and what you can't do, both on the pitch and in your life. And the Jewish people had this very sense of which law was a good thing. And as a consequence, they were very happy talking about God as being a judge. Because the judge brought law and order. He brought peace and security. As we read earlier on in Psalm 32, you could hide yourself in him because he brought security. Love requires law. It requires order. We've been celebrating Mother's Day. My mum sadly died in a car crash many years ago. But we loved our mum and one of the great things about mum is we knew mum was a mum of loved us but also she did that by order. We knew exactly what was right and wrong in our households. And she was like a lioness. She protected us. You know, if people broke her moral code for us as, as, as children, she'd be down the school in an instant defending her, 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 her lions. She was someone who demonstrated her love through law in the way that she ran the household and protected us. It was really important. We didn't have this negative view. And so God was like, he was seen as being a judge, not a negative judge, not the kind of judge that so often we have in our minds, this kind of very negative picture, this vindictive picture, this oppressive, cold, heartless picture of a God. That is not God. God is the judge of all the earth. As Abraham said, will he not do right? Why does he do right? Because he's a God of righteousness and justice. And it's significant in the Hebrew and Greek, both those two words that we have in English, there's only one word for them in Hebrew and Greek. Righteousness and justice come together. God is a righteous God because he's a just God. And he's a just God because he's a righteous God. They relate to each other. We see them in the nature and character of God. And so we'd come to this term justify. Justify. And justify is a legal term. And it's the, it's, the, it's the sentence that's actually given by a judge. It means to acquit, to declare righteous, to absolve, to vindicate. It is the judge's sentence over someone. And there's loads of scriptures that talk about this. The main passages, for example, are passages like Acts 13, where it says, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification that you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. It comes in passages, for example, like Romans 3 that Simon read for us earlier on. All are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. It says later on, he did this to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Romans 4. 
to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. It's a pronouncement over the criminal that they are justified, they are vindicated. And it's very important to remember, as I said earlier on, that we get confused in the, in, 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 in the West, in the modern 21st century, partly because we're looking through the Old Testament and the New Testament through the 21st century eyes, but also because in, in the Hebrew and the Greek, there's only one word for this. And we have two words. And that partly confuses us to what justice, justice means, uh, sorry, uh, justification means. You see, because it's one word, in the in the Hebrew and the Greek, when we are justified, that's not an ethical statement. It doesn't mean we've lived perfect lives. It's not a statement that says we're given the goodness of Jesus Christ over our lives. It is a judicial statement. It is a legal term saying that the sense that that but we are vindicated, we are justified, we are given the status of someone whose sins are, are blotted away, are washed clean. We are acquitted. That's what this term means to justify. But it firmly puts God in the judgment seat. God in the judge's seat. We've mentioned earlier on Genesis 18 verse 25 where Abraham says, Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And the reason that the Hebrews were so comfortable in describing God as a judge is because it wasn't the kind of oppressive picture we saw earlier on of that judge leaning down and condemning. That's not never the picture um, in the Old or the New Testament. God is always a God whose love, whose justice is tempered with righteousness. And righteousness is perfection. That's why people get this wrong, because they don't recognise that that one word means both of those things of justice and righteousness. God is perfect. He can't make wrong or bad or poor judicial statements because it's not in his nature. He is perfect. When he pronounces, it is just and it is right. We get so confused. I've been reading a book recently. We get so confused that confused the whole idea. Try to suggest, for example, that this whole picture of God as a judge comes from the writings of Calvin, who was a Swiss lawyer, a reformer. I'm afraid that's fundamentally not true. The very first book of the Bible, Genesis, talks about God as a judge, not as a judgmental judge, but as a loving judge. One that does right, because justice and righteousness are one word in the Hebrew. It's true that Calvin's um, uh, Calvinism itself became very legalistic in one sense, because Calvin had a lawyer's mind. But it's not true of the Reformation faith. And it's certainly not true that, it, that, it, that this whole view of God being a judge originates from the 16th century. That's just poppycock. It comes from this first chapter, the first book of the Bible. And the Hebrew people were very comfortable with the idea of justice and the idea of God being a judge because God brings them protection. And we read about that earlier on in Psalm 32, that we can hide in God. You wouldn't hide in an, in an abusive judge. God's a loving, righteous judge. 
someone who brings order. And you see this order in the natural world. Jeremiah 8 verse 7 says this, Even the stalk in the sky knows their appointed seasons, and the dove, the swift and the thrush observe the time of their migration. But my people do not know the requirements of the Lord. Jeremiah was saying God is a God of order. And, the, and these ideas of the seasons are part of the judgments. They are basically part of the orders, the way God orders us, our world. We have math. All our science is based around math. And math is order. It's not chaos. You know, we can say two and two equals four. It's logical. It's progressive. It has order to it. And God has given us a world of order. And a world of order has laws. A common one, of course, is the law of gravity. There's laws all around us that determine what can happen and what can't happen. And they're there to provide order and certainty. And all our science is based upon these laws of order and certainty. What's interesting is that um, in this passage where it says that the people um, don't respect the requirements of God, the word used there in the Hebrew language um, is misfat. And misfat literally means it's judgment. And it says, it's saying the people don't understand the judgments of God, who don't follow the judgments of God. It's saying the animals do. They migrate at the right times. The plants do. They come out of the earth at the right seasons. But man so often struggles with the judgments of God because he has free will. And what's fascinating is that this idea of judgment is seen very positive as God being the judge in the Old Testament. Because, in fact, salvation is referred to as a judgment. So, for example, um, it, it, when, when the writers are talking about the liberation of the people of Israel from Egypt, it's described as a judgment upon the Egyptians. Exodus 6, verse 6. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out under the yoke, from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Exodus 7 verse 4, I will lay my hands on Egypt and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. God saved his people through his judgments as the judge of all the earth. He liberated them because that was right and proper because they were being oppressed. Salvation is seen as an outworking of the judgment of God. It's a positive thing, not a negative thing in the Hebrew eyes. And so we see this again in the Old Testament law, the social law that brought justice and security. What are the two principles that Jesus talks about in the New Testament? Love God and love your neighbour. And he said that the whole of the, uh, the Old Testament law is summed up in those two expressions. Love God, give to God, your creator, what is right, what is due, your thanks and your, and your glory because he made you and gave you life. And how else do we act? We act lovingly to our neighbour. That is right. That's the law that God gives us. It's positive. It protects us. If everyone loved their neighbour, there wouldn't be crime. There wouldn't be theft. There wouldn't be murder. There wouldn't be rape. There wouldn't be all the poison we see in our society. It's because people don't follow the word of God that we have this criminality 
and this kind of behavior mm. law is positive and god being a judge is a positive thing it brings order in the ancient world where the other gods the roman gods and the greek gods um and the viking gods were all capricious they were constantly using mankind as a plaything and punishing him and, and laughing in in, in a, mount olympus playing with humankind and making them suffer just because it was a fun thing to do that's not the picture of god we get in the old testament or the new testament god is a god of order he cannot do that because it's not in his nature because he's a just god he's a righteous god he does what is right he's not capricious so he gave the the jewish people a sense of security because they knew how to please him by following his law he wasn't capricious he wasn't simply going to zap them because he didn't like them or because he was having a bad hair day that's not the way to god the way god acts god is righteous and just it was a gloriously good thing in the hebrew culture they were very happy to see god as judge because they knew when they came before him they would be treated fairly and justly because he is righteous we've got the problem in the 21st century with the idea of god being a judge because fundamentally we're scared that god will really see who we are our problem is that we have a 21st century is that we don't really like scrutinizing law scrutinizing our behavior we like to hide in the darkness because the Bible says that man is in the dock, that we screwed up, that we're not naturally good people. We can do good things, absolutely, but we're not naturally good people. Romans 3 verse 23 says this, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God is God's standards. We all fall short of the glory of God. It's not suggesting we haven't got goodness in us. Of course we have, but we haven't got enough goodness. We're not perfect. Are you perfect? says elsewhere in Romans 3, as it's written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And that from, from Paul is based upon Psalm chapter 14. He says that man has blotted his copybook. And the problem when you blot your copybook is that once it's blotted, it's blotted. You can't get rid of the stain. It's an insoluble stain. We were talking about mothers and Mother's Day. My mum was a great mum of, of order, trust me. And I remember one occasion we were, we were sitting in a house in Wandsworth, uh, our house in Wandsworth, and we were all sitting down. I think it was Christmas, and we knew what mum was like because we'd grown up with mum, obviously. And one of us in the in the, in the siblings, there's four of us now, and our, our four four siblings and our, and our partners sitting around in the living room, and someone kicked over a cup of coffee. It was fascinating because as soon as that coffee cup just tipped over and that brown staining hot fluid began to pour out on mum's new carpet in her house in Wandsworth, every one of us leapt to the ground because we knew the import of what had happened, how significant, how critical this was to our happiness this Christmas time and people rushed out to get warm water and and, and soap and, and and cloths to try and mop up and to hide the evidence because we'd soiled the carpet and we knew that mum would see it with her radar eyes and that we'd be in big trouble and we were all in our 30s we just knew we'd made a mistake we weren't allowed to have hot drinks in the living room and we've blotted our copybook and it's insoluble, it can't go away. We are stuck with these stains. And the thing was, even if you can 
Um, I mean, once you say a word, you can't retract it. Once you've done something, you can't actually undo it. You may say sorry for it, but the act is still done. And we may, from this point onwards, promise to live a great life and never to screw up or sin again. But that's great. That's wonderful. But it doesn't deal with the screw-ups in the past. And that's the problem. Before God, we, we have blotted our copybook. We have sinned and done wrong. But the wonderful thing about this judge is this. The judge of all the earth becomes the victim for all the earth. The judge of all the earth comes down out of his, his position of judgment and goes in front of the dock and takes the punishment for us. Galatians 3 verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And it, as it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on the tree. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. God made him who was no sin, who had no sin, to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 3 verse 18. For Christ died for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. The judge becomes the judged. The judge steps out behind his massive oak facade and steps down into the courtroom and steps into the very dock and is led out from the dock to a cross and is executed, paying the price of the criminal and all the criminals. And we're told in that reading earlier on that Simon brought to us in verse 25, he did this to demonstrate his justice. The punishment, the crime had to be paid for. It had to be. That's what justice demanded. And the only way that a God of love could, could actually enable that to happen with his righteousness and his justice within his being was to become the sacrifice. To become the victim. He was sinless. Jesus had done no wrong. But he died in the place of those who had. That's how loving and gracious this judge of all the earth is. Our God whom we worship. Professor Leo Morris writes this. He says, the cross demonstrates the righteousness, the just, so the cross demonstrates the righteousness, the justice of God. In the very act by which sin is put away decisively, the death of Christ upon the cross, God is seen to be judged. Just. The, ju the price is paid, as that famous song is uh, pronounced from Graham Kendrick. The price is paid. And the verdict is given and the verdict is given is Romans 5 is one righteous act resulted in a justification and life for all people through the death of Jesus upon the cross we are justified and that means that we aren't just acquitted we are declared innocent do you really understand what that means this morning but all the wrong you've done in the past, everything you've done, the harmful words, the things you've done, if you come to Jesus and repent and give that to God, you are not just forgiven, you are acquitted. And you 
are declared innocent. The God gives us the status, the legal status of someone who is justified, as people used to say, justified never sinned. That's what it means, justified never sinned. You are given the status of a righteous person. This is no mere pardon, because pardon means we're let off. We are given the status of a righteous person. We are justified. And so, and so Paul writes later on in Romans 8 verse 1, that famous word, Romans 8 verse 1, Therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. You know, you may often be condemned by Satan. If you're a believer, if you're a, one of, you know, if, you, if you're a Christian, there is no condemnation. If you get condemned like that relentlessly, it's often Satan whispering in your ear. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But there's the rub. There's the rub. You need to be someone who's in Christ Jesus. You need to be someone who says, I want this for myself. I want to be forgiven. I want to be justified. I want to follow God and follow Jesus Christ. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says this, Without faith it is impossible to please God. It's impossible. You can't please God without believing in him. It's impossible. It comes through accepting the salvation. And it's not a work. Some, sometimes it's suggested that when you believe it's a work. It's not a work. I remember when I was a young boy and I was in the boys' brigade and I was about 11 years old. And I used to hero worship a, a tall Chelsea supporting guy called Colin Peacock. And Colin Peacock had a great testimony. He's one of the officers in the Boys Brigade company. And he had a great testimony. And he's, he'd been a Chelsea bobber boy, you know, man, a boy of violence. He was tall, he was strong, he was well known. He had a, a real kind of reputation in the area. He'd have been a Chelsea bobber boy. But Jesus put his hand upon that, that young man's life and he came to faith. And I love Colin because he was kind of really rough and manly, but really godly in, in another, another way. And I remember um, we went to the swimming pool to do some swimming. And Colin was, you know, Colin was really tall, right? almost twice the height of me. I was only 11 years old. And um, he, um, he, I, I said to him, Colin, I can't swim. And he said, oh, don't worry about that, Cole. He says, you know, just, just, just try your best. So I, I kind of did my best, which wasn't very good at that time, and, and got myself in the middle of the deep end. Um, and I began to struggle. And I began to really struggle. And I remember I was, I was, let, I was sitting, sitting there bobbing up in the water, trying to keep myself afloat. And I began to wave at Colin that I was struggling. And he turned and looked at me and waved back. And, and you know, I didn't get it. And it wasn't until I began to literally go under the water, went underwater several times and came back up again, gasping for breath. He suddenly got it, but I was drowning. And he leapt into the water and pulled me to the side. Now my putting my hands up and waving at Colin, didn't wasn't the, the thing that saved me. It was Colin's goodness leaping in the water and pulling me out. That wasn't a work. I can't say, wow, I saved myself because I waved at Colin. Of course you didn't save yourself. Colin was the one that pulled me out of the water. And our faith, our belief in Jesus doesn't save us in the sense that we've done it for ourselves. We're simply saying, we need you. Lord, pour me out this mess. Help me. Help me. The Bible says that God is a loving and a good God. And that righteousness and justice um, are part of his nature. And because of that, the crimes and the wrongs of the past had to be paid. But because he's a loving God, God took the punishment for you and me. And because of that punishment upon his son Jesus, you and I are justified. That we are pronounced 
acquitted. Not guilty. We are given the righteousness of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And we can look forward to knowing God, not just now in this life and in all that that brings, but look, look, look forward to knowing God in eternity. Through when he takes us to be with him. People, if you believe in the Lord Jesus, if you're following him, if you're in Christ, there is no condemnation. You are justified. Not because of your work or anything you've done, but because of the love of God, because of the nature and the essence of God's heart, because of the work of Jesus Christ, who died for you. Amen.